Thank you. Hey, um, can we do a, a real quick um, follow instructions here? Can you look at two people next to you and say, let's worship Jesus today? Can you say that? Two people. Okay, two people, right? Two people, all right. Uh, just like a lot of y'all, uh, when I was growing up, I had a favorite book. How many of you guys had a favorite book growing up? Okay, good. Um, I had a favorite book. It was called, um, well, one of my favorite books was called My Book About Me. Has anyone heard, heard this book before, My Book About Me? It's written by, uh, written by Dr. Seuss, um, but it's actually written by, by you. And so on the cover of this yellow book, um, there's a blank uh, picture frame, and you're supposed to take your picture and glue it on there. And then uh, it says, written by Dr. Seuss with a little help from, you know, DL and, and all these other people. And so um, you open the book, and it, it asks you all these questions about yourself. It talks about, uh, first thing you need to know is, are, am I a boy or a girl? And then you write boy or girl in there. And it says, this is how many uh, years old I am. This is how many teeth. And you're supposed to draw in your teeth. And it, and then it gives you a bunch of different uh, people with hair. It has a kind of like an empty face. And and you're supposed to draw in the kind of hair that you have and, and the color. And then it says, here's the color of my eyes and, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, how many steps? This is how many steps it takes for me to get from my front door to the first tree in my house. Another question asks, it lists all these like occupations and uh, astronaut, lawyer, doctor, football player, um, all kinds of these jobs. And it says, when I grow up, I want to be these things. And then you would write in what you want to be. This book is, um, for all intents and purposes, a book about me. I would write about some of my friends. It says, these are the names of my family members. And I would write my dad's name and write my mom's name and write my brother's name. And, and these are the pets that I have. I write about other people in this book, but this book is all about me. Right? This is my book. Now, how silly would it be, I don't know, for someone, uh, Taeyong picks up this book and she says, hey, you know what? Um, this is really my book. And how silly would that be? First of all, I would be kind of offended by that. I'd be a little bit upset by that. And she would be gravely mistaken because she begins to read the story as if it's about herself. Then she's going to be confused, first of all, about her gender identity, about how many teeth she has, all kinds of things like this. She'll make all these mistakes because it's not about her. This book is really about me. Did you know that the Bible is Jesus' book about him? And granted, it talks about a lot of other people along the way. But in reality, Jesus holds up this book and he says, this is my book about me. And how would it be and how is it when we look at this book and we say, you know what, this is really all about me. Right? This is about uh, these promises are all for me. These commands are all about me and all about the things that I can do. And we oftentimes read the Bible as if we can be the hero of life and we can be the hero of this book. I want to begin um, a, a, an extended series here. I think this is important, uh, what we go through today, right? what we go through today and what we'll be going through for the next uh, few months. I want to start from Genesis and then go through, at least through the Old Testament and then parts of the New Testament, one, to give us an overview of what's going on in the Bible so that we're not just kind of like jumping into one place in the New Testament and stripping it out of its context. But I also want us to get a, a big picture to see that the Bible heroes that we read about uh, may not really be the heroes that we think they are. And as we go through the Word of God, I want to show and give it back to... Yeah, so I, I, I was watching this video where Francis Chan says, what, how would you describe the church if you had to describe the church just looking at the Bible? 
right? not asking anyone else, but how would you describe the church if you just looked at the Bible? What would that church look like? In the same way, what would it look like if we asked Jesus what he thought about the Bible? Not what we think about the Bible, not what the culture has told us about the Bible, not what other people think the Bible is, but what does Jesus think about the Bible? I want to start today by looking at Jesus' words about Scripture itself and then open it up over the period of the next few weeks, um, beginning today, to show what the Bible is really all about and then help us to place our lives in its proper context in light of what Jesus says Scripture is about. So let's look at Luke chapter 24. Um, We're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to go to verse 20, uh, 27 and then pick up a couple other verses. But I want to read this in context. Jesus has been crucified. On the third day, he's risen again. And people are in kind of, uh, they're, they're downcast, they're in disarray. And there's a particular group of people, two people, they're walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey. And as they're talking, as they're downcast about what happened to Jesus, he encounters them. And this is For all intents and purposes, what I believe to be a sermon for the ages, one that I would long, not the sermon I'm about to preach, but the sermon Jesus preached to them on the road to Emmaus. This is uh, Luke 24. We're going to read verses 13 through 27 to start. This is God's word. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then if you jump down to verse 44, we're going to read 44 to 49. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father's promised, but stay in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. This is God's word. So in this seven-mile journey, as Jesus is talking with these two disciples, right, as he's walking with them, he begins to open up the Scripture to them, And for seven miles, depending on how slowly they walked, my 
uh, sixth grade gym assignment. I had to walk two miles in 30 minutes in order to pass the class. So 15 minutes, 105 minutes, a couple hour sermon that Jesus is preaching here. Right? A sermon for the ages. We don't know what exactly he said in terms of the content of this sermon, like the verbatim words or any of the things he said. But it says in verse 27 and 40, uh, verses 44 and 45, it gives us a hint as to what Jesus is talking about. So if we look at this, uh, three things that I believe this story had to contain. Here's the first thing. The first thing he had to say was that the Bible is one book with one story. Right? The Bible is one book with one story. Look at what it says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, what does that mean? Moses and all the prophets, what does this mean? Okay, so let's teach a little bit here. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, the first five books of the Bible as they knew it. They didn't have the New Testament in these days, right? So you've got uh, these 39 different, uh, different books here and there, not compiled into one. But here you go. Jesus is talking about the first five books of the law written by Moses. He's saying this is the beginning. The last 17 books of the, New, of the Old Testament were written by prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Joel, all, all the way until Malachi. Okay? So the first five books, they considered these the law, Moses, the last 17 books they call the prophets. When he says the law and the prophets, he's not just talking about these 22 out of the 39 books. He's saying from the beginning to the end, it's like from saying from A to Z, he explained to them what was said in all the Old Testament concerning himself. So what Jesus is saying, first of all, is that from A to Z, everything about the Old Testament is about, what does he say? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You never see the name of Jesus in the Old Testament. You never see it, but Jesus is saying, look, it's all, all of it is talking about me. Hey, the first thing that Jesus is saying here is that the Bible is one story, right? One book with one story. Sure, there are 66 books in it, right? 39 books in the Old Testament. Sure, there are 39 books, but he's saying it's all really just one. And there's just one overarching story in all of it. So the question is, what is this story? Right? What is a story about? You see, a lot of times we look at the Bible. Uh, Manny has this collection. Uh, she has this pink book called um, A Collection of Stories for Girls. And in this book, there are six different stories in there. Right? There's I Wear My Tutu Everywhere, which just talks about this little girl who wears her ballerina tutu wherever she goes. And she doesn't realize the silliness and the foolishness of it. Everyone makes fun of her, but she doesn't care because she wears her tutu everywhere. That makes her happy. Then there's another book, another story in this book called Countdown to Grandma's House, where this little girl really, really, really wants to go to her grandma's house. And so every day she marks off the days on her calendar, 10 days till grandma's, 9 days till grandma's, until she finally gets to grandma's house. There's another story in here called The Best Tea Party Ever about this little girl who wants to have this great tea party, but so sad it starts raining that day, and so she can't have it. And so her mom says, let's have it indoors. And all these different stories, and they're great stories, but you could easily open the book, read one story, and that's it. You don't have to read the other stories in order to understand what this big book is about. And a lot of times, a lot of times we read the Bible like that. I just open it up, let's pick a story, pull it out, and we can read this story, but it is an isolated story that doesn't really have much bearing with the other stories of Scripture. And we do this a lot of times. We read the Bible, it's a story of this great hero, Moses, or we read this story about, you know, such and such. 
The first thing that we have to understand, Jesus says from law and prophets, all of these things, the entire Old Testament is testifying to one big story, right? One big story about a God who is passionate for his glory and his glory will be seen in the redemption of a people that he loves and he will stop at nothing in order to win that people in order to glorify himself. The first thing that we have to understand is not just a a book of a bunch of different heroes that rise and fall, which these are in there. But we realize that these heroes really aren't that great when you get into the nitty-gritty of their lives. It's not, a lot of times we think of it as as a roadmap to life, as a guide to life, as um, a book of wisdom. And it, it does contain those elements, but that's not first and foremost what this book is about. Because if we see it as a guidebook, then tell me what in the world the genealogies in the book of Numbers have to teach us. It's not, first of all, a a, a book of rules and things that we have to do. We're not the hero of the story. The first first and foremost, the Bible is a story. It's a story. What is a story about? Let me back up for a second and define then what a story is. So uh, every night when we brush Manny's teeth, she says, can you tell us a story? And so Olive and I have to make up this story as we brush her teeth, or else she doesn't want her to brush her teeth. The other night she said to us, hey, 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 mommy, mommy, today I want to tell the story. And so we said, okay, but you have to tell it before or after you brush your teeth because you can't brush and tell a story at the same time, right? And so she, I, don't, I forget when the order was, but she starts telling the story. One day, Manny and her friends, and she started naming her friends, and mommy and daddy and Elijah went to the store. Then they went to the Great Cheese Festival. Then they went to a hotel. And then they went to the Super Bowl party. The end. Olive and I looked at each other. We're like, hmm. So me being the encouraging, loving dad, I said, Manny, that was a great story. Excellent. That was so good. Olivia, being the former teacher, looked at Manny and said, Manny, that's not a story. (laughs) Said, in every story, there's not only characters, but there's got to be a problem. There's got to be a problem for a story to be a story. And without that, no story. I think one of, and I've mentioned this before, but I think one of the best people in our culture to talk about the idea of a story is Donald Miller. Now, this is what he says, and he has this great thing about it called storyline. And he says, in every story, you've got to have characters. But in every story, there's one main character who's on a mission, right? He's got a goal or she's got a goal. You've got a character, and he or she has a goal. Say, in the best stories, there are obstacles along the way, and the obstacles refine the character of the character, the hero, but it also makes the mission all the more worth accomplishing. In every great story, a hero has to put others before himself And if he doesn't accomplish the purpose, then many people's lives are in danger. That's what makes a great story. And so think about the great movies. Think about your favorite movie. Think about the movies that you love. In every great movie, especially the franchise movies where there's multiple sequels, multiple iterations of the same concept, you're going to see these things. Think about in every Toy Story movie that you've seen. In every Toy Story movie that's come out, there's always a hero who's trying to accomplish a mission. Sometimes it involves rescuing his friend from this psychotic little boy. Sometimes it involves, like, how are we going to survive 
from the clutches and get back to Andy's house. That there's always a character and he's always trying to accomplish a mission. And along the way, there are obstacles, be it uh, Sid, be it uh, Al and his toy barn, the chicken man with, who eats Cheetos and gets you know, that powder on his fingers, whether it be them, whether it be uh, lots of hug and bear. It's, there's a bunch of different villains, a bunch of different obstacles that they need to overcome in order to accomplish the mission. And it's the presence of those obstacles that makes the mission all the more significant. And if they don't accomplish the mission, then people's lives are in danger. Every great movie that you think about has a hero, has a character trying to accomplish a mission. And if he doesn't get there, then lives are at stake. Every great war movie is all about this. You've got a hero. He's got to save Private Ryan. If he doesn't get it, then lives are at stake. And along the way, people die. Black Hawk Down, Braveheart. All of these movies are the same. And that's why people are drawn to these kinds of movies. Because there's a character, there's a hero trying to accomplish that mission. And every great story has obstacles along the way. So last night, slipping through channels on the TV, and this movie came on Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Anyone see this movie? When I, when I was little, I watched this movie. It was, a, it was a fun movie to watch. I could watch it over and over and over again. This was before I found out that Pee-wee Herman was a criminal. He's a bad man. But he was funny as a TV actor. And so I watched this movie, and here you've got Pee-wee Herman, and he's on a mission to rescue his bicycle. This is his big adventure. But as much as little kids like it, it, got, it was just railed and broken in, 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 critical, in critical reviews. Why? Because that mission wasn't really worth pursuing. Is it worth it to go cross-country to get your stupid bike? And along the way, if he doesn't get his bike, no one's life is in danger. Right? That's a great story. A character trying to accomplish a mission. There are obstacles along the way. And if that mission is not accomplished, then many lives are in danger. See, when we understand, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus saying there's one great big story. And 1,500 years, 40 different people wrote the Bible. But all of them are telling one great story. And everything in the Old Testament is predicting and is preparing for it. Everything in the New Testament is presenting the story. But it's all about one story. It is not about 39 different stories that rise and fall. It's not about the story of the kings and the conquests and all of the... It's not a story about those things. It's a story about a God who's passionate for his glory and is passionate for his people who he considers to be the prize of his life, and he would give nothing short of his own son in order for this mission to be accomplished. And if this mission is not accomplished, then countless lives are at stake. And Jesus is saying this. is So then we begin to see it in light of this context. We realize that the law, the books of Moses, the teachings of Scripture, aren't first of all about us and how we're supposed to live, it shows and exposes the ugliness of our hearts that shows we can't live like this. As much as we try and live like this, how are we going to have no other gods before him? How are we going to not commit adultery in our hearts when Jesus says to have lust in your heart is to commit adultery? How are you not going to kill when even having anger at someone is to kill? The law exposes the sinfulness of our hearts and it drives us to say, you know what, we can't do this. We need a hero. The promises of Scripture come and they create in us, they kindle in us a longing 
for something that only God himself can satisfy. We read, we're reading through the book of Proverbs. They're not first and foremost about how you need to do these things. It's showing us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is wisdom incarnate. And the only way we can live a life worth living is if we find our wisdom and find our life in him rather than in the own wisdom that we have to offer. These heroes are rising and falling and they're creating in us a desire for one hero who won't rise and fall. It's all one big story. It's all one big story about a God who's passionate and zealous for his glory. And he's jealous for a people that he could call his own. And there's one story that's being written throughout the pages of Scripture. And so the question is, if there's just one great big story and God is jealous for his people, then who's this story about? The second thing that I want to point out from this, uh, from this passage, from all the Scripture, but from this passage in particular, is that it's not about you. It's not about you, and it's definitely not about me, and it's not about us. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning them. No. Verse 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about you guys in the law of Moses, prophets. No, he does not talk about that. He's saying it's all so not about you and me. It is so not about us. You see, A lot of times as we read through the Bible, our first inclination is to say, this is what I need to do. And if it becomes, again, if it becomes good advice for what you and I have to do before it becomes good news, then it's no different from the Old Testament that the Jews read. It's Judaism. That's all it is. If it's first about what I have to do, what you have to do. And if it's about what you and I have to do, then we become the hero of the Bible. We become the hero of life. But Jesus is telling us, hey, you know what? It's not about it's not about us. It's not about you and it's not about me. You see, the reason why we have so many difficulties and challenges and issues in life is because we've been mistakenly told somehow that this really is about us. Because Burger King has said, you can have it your way. It's all about you. Because customer service dictates that whatever you want, you get. Right? You can fix it however you want it. You can spin it however you want it. This is all about you. This is for you, and it's however you want to live. This is what, when you take God out of secular, out of the universities, and all they have left is secular humanism. I, I just heard from one of our students who's at one of these, these great colleges. He said, I understand when we at our senior retreat, you're talking about secular humanism and how they take God out of the equation and how it's all about us becoming all that we can be. He said, I totally understand from the first week of classes how they're telling us that this is about you. It's about you fulfilling your dreams, you fulfilling your purpose, about you becoming the God that you want to be. Says, I'm understanding this because when they take God out of the equation, what else do they have? When, when you take God out of Scripture, what else do you have? When you take the, 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 the one story out of Scripture and we make it about ourselves, then what else do we have but to make it about us? There's this uh, great song that we used to sing back in the day called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And that's, that's how it goes. Jesus, Lover of My Soul. All consuming fire is in your gaze. Jesus... Um, Lover of my soul, I will follow you all of my days. And then it goes, for no one else in history is like you. And history itself belongs to you. 
right? Alpha and Omega. This is like from before the world began to after the world is over. Alpha and Omega, God was. Alpha and Omega, you have loved me, and I will share eternity with you. It's not like, hey, um, eternity belongs to me, and then, God, you can have a little bit. Eternity belongs to him, and he's saying, I will let you be a part of that eternity. And the chorus goes, it's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you. For your glory and your fame, it's not about me. As if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. So I've mentioned this before, but Olivia had this friend in college. Um, She was really passionate. She was a little bit kind of on the Koreanized side, uh, but very, very, very passionate. She loved to sing songs of worship as loud as she could, top of her lungs. And I think all of us sitting next to her during their college days one year, and they were singing this song, It's All About You. And as this girl was singing, she was lifting her hand. She's like, it's all about me, Jesus. It's not about you. And Allah's like, what, is she, what, are you, what are you singing? But a lot of us sing that song with our lives, whether we mean to or not. Say, Jesus, it's all about me. And if we think it's all about us, then the ethic with which we live is, God, you owe me something. And if this is all about me and, and these promises are all about me and all about my life, if I do this and these things are going to happen, and those things don't happen because God is God and maybe he doesn't want them to happen. Then we get upset at God and we say, you know what, God, this is your fault. God, you owe me something. You owe me a break. Why is this happening to me? God, why is this person in my life sick? Why didn't I get into this school? Why are my parents doing this? Why are my children doing this? What's going on here? Because we live with the sense that it's all about us. And if it's all about us, then we get to call the shots. That's the mentality of life. If this is all about us, then we get to do and we get to dictate. We get to determine. It's like last week we had this retreat and someone took, uh, Sung took this great picture of all of the adults at that, at that retreat. Some of them had, had gone off to, to pack already and stuff like that. And And so he didn't get to take a picture of all of us, but he put it on Facebook. And so here, there's a bunch of us, like 50, 60. I don't know how many people were there. And a lot of times we'll look at that picture and we'll say, you know what? Oh, we'll call Sung up. I I don't think this really is going to happen. But hypothetically speaking, we'll call Sung up or we'll text him and say, hey, Sung, can you take that picture down? Why? This is like the only group picture we've got. Yeah, but um, I was sneezing and my eyes are closed in that picture. Or my hair got in my eye on that particular, right, when they said one, two, three, and so I, I don't like that picture. He's like, yeah, but there's like 69 other people that, that really love that picture, and they look great in it. No, no, no. I demand that you take that picture down. Why? Because we think that picture's about us. Be like, dude, ain't nobody looking at you. They're all looking at themselves. It is not about you. Because if it's about us, then we get to call the shots. I take that picture down. Right, some can take that picture down because he took it. Maybe he can take it down. But he's all right because he realized that it's not about me. It's not about me. I don't know. Some probably looks good. Actually, he wasn't even, were you in the, he wasn't even in the picture, so it doesn't matter. He's like, but this is not about me because when we make it about ourselves, then we get to call the shots in life. Isn't that why we're upset at God? Because we think it's about us and that God owes us something because we dutifully did all of these things. The Bible is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about how well I can do these things because I can't. If I do well at one thing, I'm going to do poorly at 99 other things. This is not about me. It's about me realizing that it's not about me. That's what the law was given. 
And only when we begin to realize that this isn't about me, there is a greater hero that's coming, then we can realize and have the power and the strength to actually begin to live these things out. Not because it's going to earn me something, not because I'm the hero, but because I'm living for his glory now. And in doing so, yeah, I find joy and I find purpose and I find meaning, but all of that is wrapped up in the story of his glory first and foremost. It's not first about how you can be happy in this life. Imagine walking out into out of this room at night and all the stars are going off and the shooting stars and all these comments. And you're like, man, all these, these things are happening because of me. And you go to Ecuador, as, as Minson was talking about, and you, you look at the, these vast mountains. You're like, man, these mountains declare the glory of me. The thunder and the rain and the lightning, as you look at its beauty, you're like, man, all these raindrops, it's all for me. And everywhere in churches all around the world, people are gathering. They're singing these songs that even this church harvest. Our church, they're all singing about me. But how foolish would it be for us to think that this is for us? Or it's about us? Or it's about our lives? To shake our fist at God and say, God, you owe me something because I obeyed your word. It's like this little ant saying to the elephant, move out of my way. You better, you owe me something because I did this for you. The elephant should be like, dude, I didn't even know you were there. I could step on you and squash you. What are you talking about? But our God doesn't say that. Because he's passionate for our glory, for his glory and for our souls and passionate for our worship, for us to find their deepest joy in him. And so the last thing, last thing that we look at here. Bible's one book, one story. It's not about us, the hero of the Bible. I don't even need to tell you this, but you know it's Jesus. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. We saw this in 27. We saw it in, in 44, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. What do we need to understand? We need to understand that when we look at the word of God, yeah, we see ourselves in it. More than anything, we need to look through the scripture and see the true hero. We need to see Jesus in it whenever we read the scriptures. And whenever you read the Proverbs, that is not just about, this is what I need to do. Because we'll fall short. We have to look through the Proverbs to see Jesus and see how is Jesus the true fulfillment of this? And how can I worship him and give thanks to him as he has done this for me? in order that I can now live this way. You see, in every story, there's a hero. And as you begin the book of Genesis, you may think that that hero is Adam. But as you hear of Adam falling and messing up, in countless stories, right, in the best stories, in the stories that you consider to be epics, right, in these stories, there's a hero pursuing a goal, and every time you think, you know what, this story's over. And at the very beginning, God said, Adam, here you go. This is what you got to do. And Adam fails. And God says, because you failed, if you eat of this tree, then surely you will die. And as death is introduced in the story, people who are reading it, they're like, this story's over. But the story goes on. And they give birth to children because God promised that out of you, Eve, is going to come one. Someone is going to come. Your offspring is going to come. And he's going to defeat Satan. And so she has children. 
and you're thinking, which of these kids, Cain, will it be Cain, will it be Abel? And Cain kills Abel. So you realize, well, it wasn't Abel. (laughs) And it's not going to be Cain because he just did something bad. Like this story's over. And on and on it goes. And you can't get until you only read five chapters and then you realize that the world has been so wicked that God's got to destroy the world. And you're like, this story's over. But the story goes on. And it goes on and on and on. And people rise and people fall. People rise and people fall. And you're like, man, when is this story going to get good? You think, here it is, a judge rises up and he leads the people of God. And then he commits adultery. Then he commits sin. Then she falls away. And then the people of God fall again. And then they rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. And they said, you know what? Maybe it's a king that we need. And so King Saul rises up, but he falls down. David rises up and they say, you know what? This guy, he's the man. He's going to be the one who's going to lead us back to God. But then he commits adultery, he commits murder, and he falls. The kingdom is divided with Solomon. You're like, man, what's going to happen? This story is over. Kings rise and kings fall. You know what? It's kind of like, I don't know if you have a favorite football team or baseball team or basketball team. You have a favorite football team, and every year they stink. And every year they draft a person because they stink. They get the first pick of the best college players. And they get the best player, and they think he's going to be the one. He's the star quarterback. It's going to lead us to the Super Bowl but he turns out to be a flame. He's no good. He falls. They're like, we got to get another. And and as the team stinks, the city, the state goes with it in depression. And then another guy rises and another guy falls. Another guy rises, another guy. And on and on until they're longing for a savior. So it was with the prophets, the kings rise and fall, rise and fall. And the prophets are like, the reason why you stink is because you sin. Come back to God. If you repent, then God will relent. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting and waiting when the prophets are saying, come back to God. Live for the glory of God again. And then 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire comes and they attack the northern kingdom and they, they destroy it. And the people of God are like, what could be worse than this? We've only got two out of the original 12 tribes left. And then in 586, the Babylonian Empire comes and they smash these guys and they're exiled into Babylon. And for all these years, they're away from their home. They're like, this story, how is the story ever going to get good? And for 400 years, from 400 B.C. until what we know as 1 A.D., for 400 years, there's silence. God doesn't speak to the people of God for 400 years. No prophets, no priests, none of these, no kings. That's longer than our country has been in existence as a nation. Can you imagine from now until the year 2413, no preachers, no pastors, no missionaries, nothing. 400 years. Right? Surely the story's got to be done. You think after 10 years, it's over. 20 years, it's over. 100 years, it's over. 400 years, that's 10 generations of people. That's your great, 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 10 times over grandchildren. Nobody, and all of them dying because they don't know anything about the things of God. 400 years, there's silence. The story's over. Until about the year 30 A.D. There's this one singular voice, a prophet, eating locusts and honey, dressed in the skin of animals. And people are coming to him. He's like, don't come to me. And he sees this one singular figure walking along the shore. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
says, this is the hero that you've been longing for. This is the one that has been talking about. This is the one that prophets are. This is what all of the Old Testament is about. It's him. It's him. Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Don't ask about me. Don't ask who I am. It's, it, it's him. I'm just a voice calling out for him, to him, to prepare the way for him. And so Jesus rises up on the scene of history. The true hero amongst all heroes, all these men and women will rise and fall. As you read through scripture, is it primarily about you and me or is it primarily about Jesus and the glory of God through his son? Sinclair Ferguson, you ask him, who's the Bible about? And this is what he says. You have to see in every hero that they were just pointing forward to a greater hero to come. You think about Adam. And you think about the imagery, it's no mistake, it's no accident, that in the garden, Adam was told, obey me about this tree. And he failed bringing sin into the world. Jesus is the true and greater Adam, who in a garden, the father said to his son, obey me about this tree and others will live. And so Jesus went to the cross to die for our sin. It's not about Adam. It's not about these heroes. Be like Adam. You're going to be like Adam. You're going to sin and you're going to destroy the rest of the world. It's not about be like Adam. He's not our hero. Adam's pointing forward to the second Adam, the, great, the true and greater Adam found in Jesus. It's not first about Abel. Right? Abel was killed. He was killed innocently by Cain. And it says his blood cries out for justice. It's not about Abel either because Jesus was the true Abel who was innocently killed. His blood cries out, not for justice. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's not about Abel, and it's not about Adam. It's not about Abraham who left his home and his riches to go into the, into the unknown in order that he might win a people for himself, the father of many nations. It's not about him. Jesus was the true and greater Abraham who left behind everything that he knew to go into the unknown so that he could win a people for himself. It's not about that. It's not even about Isaac, who was offered up on the mountain, but whose life was spared. It's about Jesus, who's the true and greater Isaac, who was not only offered up, but he was killed on the mountain in order that we might know how much God loves us. It's not about Jacob, who wrestled with God and got struck on his hip. It was Jesus who wrestled with the Father and took the blow forever in order that we might have grace in order that we might be fathered in a way that we weren't before. It's not about Joseph, who in all of his greatness overcame temptation and was brought to a position of prominence at the right hand of the Father in order that he might forgive those who did him wrong. It's not about Joseph. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus who lived the life that Joseph didn't live, a perfect life. He fleed from sin. He had no sin in him, and he was elevated to the right hand of the King of kings and the Lord of lords in order that he might forgive those who had done him wrong. It's not about these heroes in the Old Testament. It's not about Moses who mediated between God and people in order that he might bring in a covenant. It was Jesus who stood between God and his people so that by his blood and by his body, he could bring in a new covenant in his blood. It's not about them. It's not about you and me. This is all about Jesus. It's, all about, it's not about David and that. If you be like David, you can kill the giants in your life. It's not about that. It's about Jesus Christ who took on the giants of our lives. And his victory is considered your victory, even though you didn't lift a stone to kill him yourself. This is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. He is the rock of Moses who was struck 
in order that living water would flow. He is the Passover lamb who has killed the innocent for the guilty. He is uh, the true temple. He is the true priest. He's all of these things that the Old Testament talked about. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord. This is all about Jesus. And as soon as we begin to realize that the Bible is not about us, life is not about us. It's not about these heroes that rise and fall. It's about Jesus alone. And look what it says will happen in verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Does your heart burn when you read scripture? It will when you see Jesus in every page. Your heart will burn because it's not about what you have to do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. To win a people for the glory of God back to himself. Therefore, because of what Christ has done as a true hero, we say, God, because you've done that for me, all of my life and nothing less, I offer to you my righteousness. Then we can begin to live the life that he's called us to live. Then we can live in the freedom of these commands with joy, with purpose. Then our hearts will burn within us. As we see, not just, this is what I have to do. That's a weight. That's going to deaden us. But when we see Jesus in Scripture, our hearts begin to burn. We're going to fall in love with Jesus. And then his commands become not a burden, become a joy. Because we see Jesus. He's our motivation. He's the one who's done it. He's our true hero. Let's pray together. As we pray, let's take a moment just to give thanks to the Lord. Our praise team comes up. Let's just thank Jesus. Thank Jesus that it's not about you and me. It's not about us. It's not up to us to be the hero. It's not up to us to fix the world. Jesus has done that. Jesus has done that. And yeah, we have commands to obey. And yeah, we have promises to embrace. But God's primary motive in giving us those things was not so that you could be happy, so that you and him could be buddy-buddy. Primary purpose was that God could be glorified. And he's glorified as we honor him with our obedience. He's glorified as we honor him. And that's where we find our joy. As a byproduct of glorifying God, not as something that we seek. I want to be happy so I look for all these things and happy. No. Our joy, our happiness is a byproduct of glorifying God with everything that we are. Let's just give thanks to God. Jesus, you have done what Adam couldn't do. You did what Abraham couldn't do. You did what Moses couldn't do. You did what Solomon couldn't do. You did what Isaiah couldn't do. You did what the prophets failed to do. Jesus, you did what I could not do. And in living the life I should have but could not live, You were able to be a perfect spotless lamb so that at the cross on another mountain, you died the death that I should have died to be the hero because if you hadn't done those things for me, you hadn't done those things for the world, then many would have been lost. But thank you, Jesus, that you've done it perfectly. You've done it in a way that no other could. You are our hope. You are our longing. You are our desire. Just take a moment to give our thanks to God, to pray to him, thanking him 
for his love for us in Christ. Just pray for a minute and then we'll continue to pray through songs, through our offering. Just pray for a minute. We commit our hearts to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for the sobering reminder that this world was going just fine before we ever were born into the world. And after we die, the world's going to continue on just fine without us. It's not about us. Psalm 103, 15 and 16 says that men, women are mere mortals. Like the flowers, we rise one day and we're gone tomorrow. But God, you stand forever. How could it be about anything, anyone other than you? So Jesus, forgive us for making life about us, for making the Bible about us, for making worship about us, for making the songs about us, for making Sundays about us, for making our families about us. Forgive us for making anything about us. It's all about you. It's all for you. It's all for your glory, for your fame. We can say we love you, but it's only because you loved us first. Because, God, you are on a mission to win back a people for yourself, to call your own for your glory. That's who we are, a chosen people, chosen race, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood called out of darkness to declare your praises, to live our lives in order to bring you praise. We thank you so much. Thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.